Hello listeners, welcome to Scraps, a podcast where we bring to you, our listeners, the stories about sparks of brilliance in science and innovation. Scraps is proud to present Pick Education, igniting curiosity and discovery through real-world experiences. Please check out www.pickedu.com. That's www. P-I-C-K-E-D-U.com for more information. on Scraps today is someone I met a few years ago through a good friend named James Zainwich um, at Tulane University. And James himself is an extraordinary and fascinating person. So when he told me, you got to meet this guy, he's amazing. He's totally out of this world. Um, That really carried a lot of weight with me. And indeed, my conversation with Jason Osborne was one of those conversations during which you may as well just leave your jaw on the floor and catch flies because the yarns he spins are amazing. Jason is one of those rare individuals that inspires you to do and be better. He's a mentor, a leader, an instigator, and I'm going to guess even an agitator. He's a renaissance man in the true sense of the word. So turn up the volume and let's get some amazing tales of dinosaur beer and changing the face of STEM and more. So Jason, I I think one of the things that I want to start with is your diving. Um, most people I know get dive certified to to go and dive the Great Barrier Reef or sort of melt into the blue waters of the Virgin Islands, and you dive in swamps. Can you can you start us off with how what that's all about? Oh, uh, sure, absolutely, Jojo. Um, I get that all the time, and uh, you know I looked at scuba diving as a tool to get me into places that no one else would dare to go, um, primarily to put me in locations that are yielding possible new species or things that no one has ever discovered before. And um, those, those places just happen to be in swamps, uh, sometimes infested, or infested with alligators or sharks. Um, uh, the, the, the reason behind that is, is I'm, I'm very interested in paleontology um, I love discovery ever since I was a little kid. And I knew that um, if I went into some of these areas and these swamp rivers, particularly in the East Coast, they cut through ancient formations and they expose uh, fossils uh, underwater. And um, so scuba was just one way that I could try to get down in the bottom of these river systems that are cutting through these ancient formations. And uh, you just have tons and tons of different obstacles, but the reward is, is unbelievable. So what triggered the interest in paleontology, Jason, then? So for me, as a little kid, I, I lived on a farm. I was always curious, naturally curious. And, um, we lived in an area where there were lots of like slate deposits and uh, different uh, rock formations that bear, you know, ancient history. So I was always fascinated as a kid. And where was this? What's that? Where was this? 
This was in Pennsylvania. So Pennsylvania, okay. Yes, yes. So I, I grew up in South Central Pennsylvania. Um, sorry, I failed to mention that. And uh, so I would just crack open these rocks, and I was just, I, I was just fascinated. I was very curious, and um, I just, I, I couldn't stop just cracking them open to see what was in the next rock. And uh, that, that what started as a uh, curiosity turned into a um, a hobby, then an obsession, then a, a nonprofit organization. So, uh, so ever since I was a kid, I was just really, really fascinated and interested in why things were. So, but you've, I, I was able to watch um, a little bit of your um, NPR story on Voice of America about some of the things you've done with, with what you've found in the swamps. And it's, it's uh, potable. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, I always have these little brainchild ideas and uh, uh, one thing stems to the other. So um, I was through a nonprofit organization and um, I co-founded, it, it circled around research and it circled around uh, discovery and in a direction of paleontology. And some of that work was directed towards the K-12 environment and education. Well, there's, there's this over 21 crowd out there that uh, also uh, should uh, benefit from some of the discoveries and some of the educational things that we were doing. So it came up with the, the wild idea of what if we started swabbing some of these ancient bones and in particular uh, marine mammal bones that existed uh, 30, about 35 million years ago and what if we swabbed them and came up with some type of yeast and say that we could brew with this yeast? It was a, it was a wild hair idea. And uh, I love beer and I love brewing and I love biology and I love discovery. And, um, and I thought it would be interesting if we can kind of uh, um, touch the over 21 crowd with, you know, what are you putting in your, in your gullet? And uh, so I, I, I joined up with a friend of mine, a molecular biologist and chemist. Uh, his name is Jasper Ackerboom. And together, both of us worked at this place called uh, Howard Hughes Medical Institute, Genelia Research Campus. So I, I, I shared the idea with him. I said, hey, what if? And he thought I was a little crazy, but he was, he was kind of interested and intrigued. So we started swabbing some of these bones. And uh, we failed miserably on many of the cases, but then there was a particular fossil that just yielded a ton of this yeast uh, that actually fermented on a beer wort. And, uh, and it was actually kind of tasty. So we, we brewed this beer called uh, um, Bone Duster's Paleo Ale. And uh, NPR did a wonderful story or video story uh, basically sharing out the why we did what we did and uh, they tied it into some uh, really uh, interesting twists to molecular biology chemistry and paleontology at the same time describe the day um, that you that it actually worked to us and more importantly uh, after you described the day when you actually tasted the beer and you thought it was great uh, it was marketable um, and something that you could give to your friends um, also tell us a bit more about what the fossil or what type of an marine mammal was that um, so that the viewers or listeners can understand. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, the day that, uh, that it was great was a great day because all the other ones tasted absolutely horrible. Um, 
lots of bacteria in some cases taken over or some yeast that just didn't produce very good beer. But then also trying to come up with a recipe that worked really well with the yeast itself. Uh, so that was kind of dynamic. And I do remember the day that, uh, um, that we tried it and we liked it, but even more so the day that uh, we, we decided to take it from a very small batch, which is five gallon batches to a, a 960 gallon batch. So we jumped dramatically. So, uh, you know, we were very ambitious. At that same day, uh, we had Voice of America there doing filming. So that was um, quite nerve wracking. But um, when, it, when it came to the fermentation process, the beer started to ferment for a little bit and then it dropped and we were like, Oh my gosh, or, you know, it's, it's, there's no alcohol or it's, it's not feeding it. You know, we're not going to get a beer. And we're just, we're just thinking, Oh my gosh, we just, we just killed this 960 gallon batch. And then Jasper called me, I think it was late at night and he goes, you're not going to believe this, but it, the yeast started becoming active again. So it went, so we were working with wild strains of yeast, which, you know, a lot of the beers nowadays, it's, it's, it's very uh, uh, um, domesticated, right? So there's some interesting facts around like Budweiser where they took um, their original state strain that they had locked away for many, many years. And then they pulled it out. This is a couple of years ago. And then they brewed with that batch. And it was, it tasted completely different than the Budweiser that you draw, that you buy now. It's because it's, you know, they're not, they're using more of a just domestic strainer over time. So anyhow, we, uh, um, this thing started getting active again. And so we were hooping and hollering about that because we did not waste a, an absorbent amount of, of energy and um, uh, lots of uh, ingredients that went into it. Um, so that was pretty exciting. And uh, it, it came out extremely well. It, uh, we got a, a lot of positive re response around it. There was, a lot of folks, uh, you know, from the, uh, uh, I think it was American Academy of, um, of uh, uh, oh, it, was a, it was a group out of D.C. and I forget, oh my goodness. Um, but these, these different organizations out of D.C. that are around um, um, fossil organizations to the USGS to, to museums all wanted to use it for their uh, different uh, events and what have you. And... Uh, uh, so that was really exciting. And then when they found out, a lot of them, when they, when they started digging in and found out what we took the, the yeast off of, which was uh, an ancient whale, um, it was Edicetus wardii, it was a paper that we pushed out um, um, on the bones themselves. And this would still, this is when stale, our whale still had remnants of legs. So, uh, so that's kind of fascinating too, because then we can tell that story. So as they're drinking their beer, they can talk about, you know, evolution and, you know, and uh, these whales and the fact that whales lived on land. And uh, it, was, it was really cool. And there was a lot of different twists to it. And then we, uh, we, we got a lot of press all around the world and, um, you know, from, uh, from England to Russia to, to uh, Korea, all these different countries, you know, taking their own little spin on the, on the, the discovery. But, but in, in theory, I mean, yeast is everywhere. It was just, it's kind of, it was, it was fascinating to me as well is, you know, the fact that yeast is everywhere. You could, you could make Corvette beer if you wanted, you know, if you could find a yeast that was living on a Corvette. And <laughs> it, but it, but it was, it was the fact that it just drew so much attention and it had people talking. Um, 
that was so fun because it really did. It engaged people, it engaged in conversation, and then people started thinking about things they just normally wouldn't think about. So in the end of this, uh, this wicked little experiment, um, it just created a lots of energy and uh, lots of discussions just around science and, and, uh, and brewing. So. But it, it's, it's very interesting, Jason, because you actually went from from trying out various recipes. I mean, I think most people try to brew beer uh, in, in, in their cellar or, or in, in the backyard and they don't succeed, uh, right? I mean, I actually know so many people who actually do that. Um, but it's, in your case, I think you'd failed many times. So probably you had a, a fixed recipe that you were trying out. I mean, walk us through what was the varying factor? Was it just a strain of yeast that was, that was the only difference? And there was, so one is about getting to the stage where the beer was. And after that, you also said you had to scale up. So which means that is also a part of optimization from, from an invention to optimization of, of quantity. Uh, yeah. So, um, yeah, there's, there's a few facets to those, que to those questions. And, uh, um, yeah, it was the strand of yeast that it was a, a, a variant of Saccharomyces yeast, which is... Um, very fruity, and uh, we tried to do, once we figured out that there was, uh, this thing was fermenting on wort, um, what, what recipe would go best with the yeast? And since it was so yeast forward, something that was overly hopped, like an IPA, would take away from the wonderful fruity flavors of the yeast itself. So we wanted to kind of tame it down and go with something a little more uh, uh, ale-like and, um, and add some really nice toasted barley to it and make a and make a beer with the yeast that was palatable to all folks so the the connoisseur of beers that that uh can appreciate the flavors of a yeast or enjoying it but then those that aren't interested in an overly hoppy beer um also enjoyed it so almost like a blue moon kind of flavoring to it um so so that was uh that was oh i love blue moon with yeah. a bit of orange uh, in it, yeah. So then you would, <laughs> then you would like Bone Dusters, um, and I don't know if I named, if I mentioned the name or not, but it was Bone Dusters Paleo Ale. Is uh, fact that we were dusting some bones. And the second part of that question was, um, I digress there. What the second part of your question? Optimization for scaling up. Yes. So sorry about that. Um, so there was a there was a piece of this project that was very dear to my heart and that was um i joined a brewery called uh, lost rhino brewery in northern virginia and they agreed that the some of the profits of the sales of the beer that we made would go to underprivileged schools for their science department um and since you know with paleoquest since we were so de uh, geared towards science education um, I thought, well, you know what, we can, uh, we can make this uh, beer and the more volume we have, the more money and revenue we can make. So that was one of the major drivers in the process to, to really scale up quick. Um, also, I guess we were just super confident. Um, a, 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 lot of, uh, a lot of gratitude goes to Jasper and his background with uh, doing brewing and uh, felt very confident that the yeast, the yeast would make a good beer. We had a good recipe, so why not? You know, just went right into 
to, to more of a major production than, uh, than just a small batch. So where, where in the world can we go and buy some bone dusters? Is that so I'm hoping there's still some on the shelf, uh, but it's at Lost Rhino Brewery in Northern Virginia, just outside of Washington, D.C. And then they have a distribution throughout the D.C. Metroplex. Um, we did have it at one time. We had it in uh, you know, grocery stores and supermarkets and things like that you could buy. We did some spin-out projects with it. We made sours with it, which came out wonderful. So we uh, used the, the bone dusters yeast, but then it did a, a, a sour type beer, you know, a little bit more bacteria and stuff. And that went really well. As, and uh, I still have a couple bottles of the very original batch. And I, I hate to open them because I think it's the last ones <laughs> around. So they just sit there and I stare at them. And, and uh, but we have people coming from Canada to California, the, the Southern U.S. coming up to Lost Reiner Brewery just to get the beer. So one of the things I, I want to um, touch on, and, and you really did just gloss over it like it was almost nothing, like HHMI isn't a, a world-renowned research institute. You, you, as you have so often in other conversations, you bring up pretty significant um, connections and events and experience, and, and it's just sort of offhand to you. So can you tell us more about what you were doing at HHMI and how you came to be there? Yeah, sure. I, um, I was actually in aerospace and defense at the time um, that, I, that I saw an opening um, for um, the Howard Hughes Medical Institute, Genelia Research Campus. And I was uh, always interested in biology. At the time, I was not doing biology. I was doing aerospace. So, um, so I was kind of fascinated by the posting that the fact that they wanted somebody that could uh, you know, be a part of like some of their methods development. So more of the instrumentation end of, of neuroscience. Um, so, and I, I was not a, you know, at all um, an expert in any way in neuroscience. So that was kind of fascinating to me as well. I was always one that I would just dive into something. If it interests me, I would want, you know, want to chase it down. So, um, so I applied for a position and uh, I got a response pretty quickly and uh, I had an interview and it took about three months to go through the process to finally get into um, the Genelia Research Campus. Uh, I was employee number 68, so it was pretty small. I was still startup. And uh, when I walked into the building, um, I'll never forget that first day walking in for an interview. It was like something from out of, you know, some kind of, uh, um, uh, just space movie, you know, I mean, it felt like I was in Star Trek or it felt like I was in some science fiction movie. It was, it was just absolutely awesome and remarkable. And, 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 and walking in today, I was thinking, well, there's no way that, that, uh, that I'm going to be a part of something so fascinating. Um, so part of the, the work with, uh, Genelia, um, again, I, I mentioned about the methods part of it. Um, I worked in a group that was uh, specifically towards instrumentation and engineering. And it was, it was a group that uh, would cater to all sciences within the building. And I, th I try to think of it as I got, I got a, a $300,000 education for free at Genelia Research Campus because I was working with the best of the best in the neurosciences or some of the best of the best, I should say. 
um, in neurosciences and uh, in physics and instrumentation uh, to microscopy. And so I was able to work with Nobel laureates. I was able to work with, um, you know, some of the, the, the coolest uh, um, things in neuroscience from, from putting backpacks on dragonflies and, uh, you know, and, and, and recording from their neurons as they're, prey, you know, during prey or, uh, capture, as well as, uh, you know, working with Drosophila on, on uh, tethered and running on treadmills. And, uh, you know, as a person prior to Genelia, I was one of those people that sometimes questioned why researchers worked on the research they did. And it wasn't until I was in that environment that it made total sense of why basic science has to happen and why it's there. And, you know, to this day, I constantly try to message the importance, the importance of basic science. Uh, it goes back to that one Sarah Palin uh, uh, comment she made uh, you know, why in the hell are we doing fruit fly research? And, and I, and I just, I, I can never forget that. I can never forget it. Cause she said it while I was working at Genelia and, um, and the, the fact that there was just so many, uh, amazing discoveries that came out of basic science. Uh, I felt as though it's an obligation to me, um, to constantly tell the, the world through every facet of work that I do now, um, then that importance and engage as many as possible into that environment, even though that I'm not currently in uh, Genelia Research Campus. I still consult a little bit for them, but, but um, the work is absolutely fascinating. The conversations uh, that I would have with Nobel laureates over, we, have a, we had a little pub there, it was called Bob's, and um, the conversations that would come out of, you know, over a, a, you know, a glass of beer or a dinner, were just so fascinating and life-changing. So it forever changed my life and my perspective on science, um, the, the networks that you can create out of an environment like that. Genelia Research Campus was a big networking hub. Um, and uh, just like JoJo mentioned this uh, earlier that, uh, you know, we would have never met if it wasn't for Genelia Research Campus. And I get this all the time. I'm constantly bumping into very interesting people and it ties back to that original network that I had at, at, at that campus. So besides just the science that we were doing and everything we were giving away, it was the networks that we build and, and, and then the, the, the communication that we push out and the amazing things that are happening. Jason, you're very, very humble and I think it's, it speaks to you as a person. Um, I think one was you spoke so eloquently about what Genelia Farm, Howard Hughes Medical Institute, which is what HHMI is to some of the listeners who may not know what HHMI uh, might be, but it is one of the primary research campuses in, in Virginia uh, at Genelia Farm. And you spoke so eloquently about what the campus and the interactions that you had gave you but there was a significant piece that you and your other team members were extremely instrumental in providing um, some of the most uh, transformational tools uh, that the researchers did not have. Uh, tell us a bit more about that because people, people need to know that. Yeah, so um, it's a great question. And, you know, our department, um, if, we, if we could buy something, we would buy it to fulfill the need of a researcher. 
our department was about, it was around what doesn't exist and how can we create it? And uh, um, I would also often tell people as I would uh, work with different labs, um, I would have to learn about, you know, at a very general level, you know, 10 or 20 different lab or researchers science. And when I go into their, into their lab and they would ask for something, you know, I'd have to process it in a super fast pace and then come up with a solution or an answer for their particular question or research. And one, like I said, one researcher could be totally different than the other. So we would dream things up. We would just, um, you know, it was a, um, you know, like, like MIT, you know, they're constantly coming up with different methods. And, and I think a large focus of like someplace like MIT is, is to push out um, publications on new methods and techniques where for us, it was just about how do we get something in the hands of a researcher as fast as possible to move the, the science as fast as possible. So it was a, a very high paced, um, um, that, there were failures, of course, uh, you know, we were trying to, to push the limits in, in things that didn't exist and, and technologies that we had to try to figure out. And if they didn't, you know, if they weren't available, we had to figure out how to make them available. So I think that what that did, it really set a lot of PIs up for some tremendous success because they had leverage and getting their work out faster. Um, because they had this resource and they had the funding and the, the PIs, they didn't have to worry about, um, you know, competing for grants because they were already given funding to do the, to do risky science. And um, <clears throat> they often compared Genelia to the, to Bell Labs and, and uh, you know, I think there was a lot of pieces of Genelia that were very similar to Bell Labs. It was very risky. It was, um, very stressful. Um, I feed off of that, though. I, I absolutely loved it. And uh, I, I feel like the days, the early days of Genelia, when I first arrived, the first couple years, were so instrumental in my life and the way I think, and, um, and also the confidence level. Um, because when you, when you have um, heavy thinkers working together at a very rapid pace, um, you know, and, and you guys probably know science changes direction like so quick and you just, yeah. you just, you, you don't have time to really focus on why there was a failure. It was moving on to the next thing. like how to make it more, you know, how to, how to turn something into a success. So being in that department was, it was just, uh, um, man, it, it was, it was an ultimate uh, experience. So was, Jason, can like you actually give us a couple of, yeah, can you give us a couple of examples of, of things that you had to develop that wasn't available for the researchers to go and buy off the shelf? Yeah, I mean, working with Anthony Leonardo on the little backpack that went on a, a dragonfly. Um, a dragonfly? Yes, a dragonfly. Okay. So this, this, is, this is not a mouse or a rat that we're talking about. No. We're talking about a dragonfly. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. yes. And what, what, did, what did it do? So... Um, one, it, 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 it had to be small enough that uh, um, a dragonfly could fly in the air. You had a little microprocessor on it, and it had to have uh, some capability of holding a charge and then recording 
uh, neurons in the brain as it would make uh, a, a decision during prey capture. And uh, try to explain that to the general public. And I was like, what? And uh, so I would, uh, I would share out um, some of the videos that were made from the Leonardo lab of a dragonfly interfacing with a, with a Drosophila in prey capture where they, um, they predict where the prey is going to be and then intercept with it. Very much like if you're watching a football game, quarterback throws the ball and the receiver intercepts the ball at a certain place in, uh, at a specific certain period of time um, they catch the ball. It's, it's the same kind of behavior, but in two different organisms. And that's one of the reasons why, uh, you know, there was research around that, that particular behavior, but that didn't exist. So that was a, a collaboration with Duke and trying to figure out uh, how to make these small little flex boards that, you know, with the mechanics and the, and, uh, the, um, um, the electronics on the back of this backpack that they were 40 milligrams or less uh, for it to fly. And, um, and then there was little um, uh, retroflective balls of stuff that we put on dragonflies as well so that you can correlate some of the video data, uh, high-speed video data during prey capture, same time you're reading neurons in, in the brain. So um, there, another piece of that was is no one was really successful on um, um, keeping dragonflies in captivity um, because of their, um, you know, their, their uh, vision. Of they, they have to have a natural surrounding and we had to mimic this surrounding inside of an arena. So we had this dragonfly arena and we had this, all these uh, Drosophila there for, for prey and had a little landing pad with a little white block on a, on a landing pad because they like to, you know, land on light services. So you're learning about the animal's behavior in the wild and you're trying to bring it inside in captivity. And then you're throwing all this crap on top of it uh, to do all this, these scientific experiments. So, um, that was just like unheard of. You just didn't hear about that. Yeah. And uh, I think David Attenberg even reached out and, and wanted to do a piece and uh, um, National Geographic, uh, you know, th you know, shared a piece of that research out there. So you could find that online. Um, and uh, I think, uh, you know, the military was interested in that as well. So it was kind yeah, of it basically it speaks to science of neuro behavioral neuroscience of decision making, isn't it? Because exactly the dragonfly is making a decision. Yes. And it's making it mid-flight to twist or turn or zig or zag to ultimately get to what it is, or maybe it chooses not to. So I, I can yes. actually see a lot of, of implied uh, applications from that, although people might actually think, scratch their heads and say, why do people study dragonflies? But I think that's the part that, that people need to appreciate. And I think the tools, the example that you gave, the tool enable that research and... Uh, yeah, that, that's, that's fascinating. Uh, yeah, it was really cool. I'll never look at a dragonfly the same way. And uh, <laughs> it's just, um, I really won't. I mean, it's, I, I think about those, every time I see one, I think about the, the work that uh, we were doing at Genelia. It forever changes the way you view things. So um, I, I continue trying to share that as much as possible. Fascinating. I think one of the things that came out, we didn't really talk about it yet, but we 
we've talked about it personally is, is before Janelia, I think you were with um, air defense. You were working on air defense. And one of your frustrations there was the necessary compartmentalization of that work um, for security purposes being one of them and, and a viable and necessary reason. But it feels like Janelia was the polar opposite of that, the, the shared environment, um, the collaboration that in a defense industry might not have been a big, been available to you. Um, where else have you found inspiration and, and benefit um, from both sides of that? Well, I, I'm glad you bring up that point because, yeah, when I was in aerospace and defense, you were, you were given a very small piece of the puzzle. Um, I mean, primarily because of security, right? So they don't want to give you, they, you, you're not allowed to have the whole blueprint of the work that you're doing. Because if you did, then you become a, you know, a, you know, a possible leak or whatever. So they would, they, you know, the work there was very, you know, very, it, it was just a little piece of like a very large puzzle of which I was never able to be uh, a part of that, uh, that the, the whole you know, the holistic uh, experience in the work that you did, and some of which I couldn't even share anyhow, because it was, you know, TS work and top secret work. So, so Genelia, yeah, it was about collaboration. It was about, you know, the end product. It was about the impact that you can make. Um, and uh, it was a very collaborative environment. So it was uh, polar opposite. And, you uh, you know, I'm, I feel like I'm extremely fortunate because I was able to be in both of those environments. But there was, you know, there was yet a, a level of satisfaction I wasn't quite getting because, you know, on a personal level. And uh, what I mean by that is, you know, you, the work that I was doing in basic science, um, ultimately it's going to make an impact on a specific area of science or a specific type of research but how does it make an impact on society as a whole now? And that, and that, I struggled with that in a way. And um, so I wanted to kind of use my backgrounds and uh, um, how do I apply it in a way that I can make um, change uh, right away and, and ultimately change in human lives. So I migrated from... Um, Genelia Research Campus, which was one of the hardest decisions I ever made because it was like, you know, working at Utopia. Um, and I uh, wanted, wanted to make a broader impact on education. And uh, so through the networks that I had, and, uh, and I created quite a few during the time at Genelia from going to California and to some of the elite conferences uh, to the work that we were doing in research, and then I had a nonprofit on the side that I mentioned earlier. It's called, um, it was around the, the PaleoQuest uh, or the, it was around the, the blackwater diving, but the, the nonprofit was called PaleoQuest. And, uh, and that was geared towards discovery and uh, education. So I decided to mesh everything that I had in my toolbox and um, tackle K-12 education. Um, and the reason why is I felt like there was just this missing gap between the post-secondary world and in our educational system. So I left, uh, I left Genelia and became um, a, a chief innovation officer for a district in 
in West Texas. So <laughs> I went from, from uh, the foothills of the Shenandoah Mountains to desert. And, um, and on a, on a uh, uh, kind of like a mission to try to make an impact on, on ed the educational system here in the United States. So I think that's fascinating to hear. I think one thing that is very clear, Jason, is that you are very unconventional from your interests in paleontology to, to kind of moving to, um, um, moving to Janelia Farm and prior to that in aerodefense, et cetera. But how did the kid from South Central Pennsylvania who had interest in paleontology go from where he was at that stage to where he ended up in aerodefense? What, what was that missing time period of your life look like? What did you do or how, how did you, why did you not become a geologist? Why did you actually go down the stream of engineering uh, at the time? Oh, wow. That, um, wow. There's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of moving parts in that answer. Um, it, I guess, I mean, the, the easiest way to describe it is, you know, I've, I've always wanted to do what interests me at the time that I was interested in doing it. Um, so a very non-traditional pathway. Um, I wasn't, you know, I wanted to do things that, that really piqued my interest. I wanted to do things that really made an impact. Um, not just, you know, you know, on the world, um, or whatever, you know, that, that would make an impact on, but then also make an impact on me because I feel like we're here, you know, for a very limited time. Um, and, um, you know, I want to, I want to be one of those people that when I retire, I can look back and say, I made an impact on society. So, <clears throat> so for, so for me throughout my life, it was, you know, there were some pretty incredible struggles. Like, uh, you know, I was in jobs where, you know, there's got to be a better way. And, um, and so instead of sitting there in that position and thinking there's got to be a better way, I went out and looked for it. And, um, and I always, in, in that process, I was always looking in, you know, my passion, you know, my, my path of passion. And, um, you know, I, you know, as we, we talked about earlier, you know, being very interested as a very young or young kid in uh, discovery and, and cracking open rocks, um, that never went away. So why would I ever want to let it go away? And I feel like too many people, um, you know, you get stuck because you go, you go to, you, after, you, after you leave primary education, you go into post-secondary, everybody forces you to pick one little tiny little piece to, to, to focus on. And, and that's what you do for the rest of your life. And I don't think that's right. I think the general, the generalist approach to life and, you know, married with your, you know, your passions or what you're interested in will ultimately make you the most successful, you know, throughout your life. So, why not be a geologist? Well, I, I wasn't really interested in writing papers as a, uh, or, well, I guess it, it'd be more paleontology than a geologist, but a paleontologist, at least all the ones that I know, um, they get stuck in a museum and they're constantly just trying to write papers in order to get funding because it's not a very funded science. 
Well, I like doing the pieces that interest me. I didn't want to do those pieces. I wanted to go out in the field. I wanted to do the field research. I wanted to do the discovery end of it. And you know what? If I had an opportunity to publish, then I'll publish. So that's what I did. You know, yeah. we have multiple publications in paleontology and geology. But that was, that was the byproduct of the things that interest me the most. And that was being out and, and discovering and being in the field. And uh, I think that's the case on, you know, with uh, um, in many other areas that, you know, that I've been interested in. And, you know, in paleontology and geology, I mean, you can get some really high paying careers, but again, it's really sp specific in one particular area. Well, I, I don't, I didn't really, as a person, I didn't want to be stuck in that one particular area. So, so why not just create your own little nonprofit and then you can play in that field um, and I can, I was very mechanically inclined throughout my life. So I can design things and do engineering and be in that field as well. Um, and then, uh, and ultimately I wanted to make a difference, uh, in my life. So that, that, that tied into the, the K-12 environment that I'm in now. So it sounds very complex and it, and it becomes very difficult, especially when you go to a job interview or you try to talk to people and they ask you, what do you do or what have you done? It's a very complex answer, but I, but to, to neck it down, I just, I always did what I love to do, you know? And uh, I think you're going to see a lot of that happening. You know, this COVID thing, uh, I don't mean to digress into something else, but no, it's on. redirecting our thought process. You know, it's redirecting how we do things and how we think, you know, the digital world, you, you know, universities are going to think very differently because um, they're struggling right now. So how do they make, you know, education more approachable? You know, Google is coming up with, you know, certification programs that are way cheaper than going through a four-year university. And you're walking out with a $100,000 job after a two-year Google certification and, and for a minute amount of a, a four-year university. So, you know, I think you're going to see more people uh, going forward, following their interest and in taking, you know, when it comes to education, you know, taking uh, certifications or, or, or uh, taking classes that align more to their personality and their wants in life. Um, and uh, which is, which is exciting to know, because I feel like, you know, more people should experience the world that I was able to experience. And, um, and how, you know, how can they do that if they're always, you know, yeah. pointed down one pathway? So, yeah. So, so it's a kind of complex answer, but uh, it's, yeah. No, it's not. You basically had one goal, which was to make an impact and you figured out the best way to make an impact. I mean, which, which is, it might be complex in terms of your, uh, what you did to get to where you are today, but I think it was just one goal in my mind. So I, that, 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 that is fascinating. And I, I think we've reached a, a point where we are really starting to see diversity in educational background and that the idea of a generalist is oftentimes a preferable solution. Just playing dev devil's advocate here for a second, because I do get a lot of people that come to me and ask, you know, what should they, how should they approach starting a career in neurotech um, as, as just a for instance, how do you convince a hiring manager, for instance, to go from paleontology and geology to building tools at HHMI and now into this innovative role in education that you have? How, how do you 
how do you get them in your corner and get them to hire you as opposed to the person who did spend 20 years in school focused laser sharp on one subject only. So they're, they're subject matter expert in one area. And here you are a generalist saying, I've got the answers, take a chance on me. How do you get them to roll the dice? Well, I think if you can show diversity and you have expertise in many areas, um, I think that is one of the ways that you can, that you could, uh, win somebody over. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share examples of when we were interviewing some candidates at Genelia Research Campus. Um, you know, I had uh, one kid that I interviewed and I asked him, I said, why do you think you deserve this position? And he goes, well, because I have a Stanford education. And that was his answer. I was just, I was just dumbfounded. But you know what? I, you know, we, we took our chances on the guy that was very diverse um, and uh, what, you know, had a little garage shop and tinkered around and made things and, and was a little bit more instrumental on the way that their thought process was. And I think that's, that is, you know, that, I guess that's a good example, but, it, um, but that is, I think is more valuable than, you know, than, than somebody that's super targeted because what, what happens if, the gear shift. Um, there was, there's, uh, and what I mean by that is, what if, what if that person is hired and they're hyper focused in one particular area, then that company's it, it shifts, it shifts gears. So is that person able to? And they may. I mean, they they might be able to adapt um, and and shift gears. Uh, it goes back to another scenario where, you know, I worked with a couple postdocs and they were expertise in one little tiny little area focused, hyper-focused in one little spot uh, in, in research. And, you know, a job opens up, a great job. And uh, you have these 10 hyper-focused people that know this specific work and you only have one job opening. So nine people don't have an opportunity to go in that job and they don't, they have no idea where else to go. So, so I think having a little bit more diverse background and also on the personality side of it, it's um, you can play a game in, in many ball fields. And I think that's super valuable. And um, you know, I, I mean, if somebody was hiring for, um, a electron microscopist to to do a high throughput pro project uh, and and image a you know a Drosophila brain. Um, yeah, do I have a little bit of experience around electron microscopy? Yes, and I have a little bit of experience doing some some tooling and things with with electron microscopy. But then I might not be the right candidate to do a high throughput scientific process. Uh, so I guess, I guess I'm kind of um, playing devil, devil's advocate on myself, I guess, depending on the situation or the scenario. But I think being a generalist and, and just having a round background on many things. I mean, think about the position I'm in now. I'm a, I'm a chief innovation officer for um, a West Texas school district with a population of, you know, 34,000 kids, 4,200 employees. Um, I had zero background in this arena. I have zero background. 
but it was because of all those different facets throughout my life that I was able to pull in a network that no one could pull in. Um, all the universities that I worked with in post-secondary, all the research, all the different things that I was able to, um, to, to have my hand in is now super valuable in this process of how do we change education? So, you know, I guess that's a, that's another, that's another example of, you know, why, why the hire, but. We thank our sponsors, Cortec. Please visit cortec-neuro.com for enabling tools for your neurophysiology research. I think this education program and your position right now is one of the most inspiring to me. And I certainly know if I had had a program like what you've put together in front of me uh, when I was in high school, um, I would have taken a much keener interest in STEM. Um, I, could you walk us through what the program is, what your approach has been, and, and who and how you're connecting with these kids? And why yeah. is that chief innovation officer in an educational district? Jason. <laughs> yeah. And um, again, that has lots of facets to the answer. Um, so through my background of, of different areas of engineering and manufacturing and science, um, developed this uh, program called PIC Education. And it's not an acronym, um, but uh, it's, a, it's an opportunity for students to pick things that they're interested in, very much like what I was talking about with my life. And um, through a lot of these partnerships, uh, including you know, the HHMI, um, created opportunities for kids to contribute to research. So, quote unquote, like citizen scientist um, or par public participation in science. And um, <clears throat> so it created like uh, pretty novel courses. We have uh, a neuroscience course that's coming out this year and well, it's actually running right now. And um, what we've done is partnered with uh, six or seven different universities where they can share data sets and different types of uh, data collecting techniques uh, with students, with high school students. And then we engineer a course that aligns with the standards that need to be taught for a state level. So we created courses from, from scratch and um, allow kids the opportunity to, to be a part of something bigger than them. So they're able to contribute to neuroscience. They're able to use uh, some of the tools out there like CatMade, uh, which is shared around the, around the world. And then that's tracing neurons in the brain. So they're learning that software, the same software as a, a postdoc would use, right? Um, and then they can learn about machine learning and uh, artificial intelligence with a, a lab up in the uh, University of Minnesota. And they're going to study cuttlefish behavior. And, and uh, so that's, you know, through this, uh, this program like Pick Education, it's just giving kids the opportunity to, to be a part of society. So we are in the middle of the desert. We're in isolation, basically. We're out in the middle of nowhere. And how's a kid to know about um, digging through um, marine sediment for marine fossils and work with uh, Southern Methodist University um, in elementary school? So 
So processing data and microfossils and having that as part of their learning experience. So that's another project that we have that's going on that the kids can, can contribute as, you know, at the same time they're learning and they get to credit for the work that they do. So it's a new, it's a different approach to education. It's, it's a You're way actually kind of giving people or the kids, especially all the way from, from, um, from kindergarten to, uh, to, to actually year 12. The basic thing that everybody actually says, even in industry, which is give people the reason why they are doing certain stuff. So therefore you're actually inculcating how a small portion of what they're doing, be it in neuroscience, be it in, in, in machine learning, or, or be it in physics or whatever, mathematics, et cetera, by working with universities across the, the country in, in the US and giving them a, a rationale for why what they're learning in their curriculum uh, using the type of software, methodologies, et cetera, is going to be applied in understanding a larger research question. And therefore, how does it impact the society? Is that a fair assessment? Jason? No, it's absolutely spot on. You're right. And, and, it, and it's making learning tangible and it, and it builds ownership in the learning process. So, um, you know, yeah. students have more agency, you know, they, they're, they're able to contribute, they get excited, they want, we, we had uh, some, you know, extraordinary data where we were seeing huge increases with student attendance. So the sheer fact that students wanted to come to school, um, the district that I'm in, we're 58% at-risk students. We have 50%, uh, around 50% or economically disadvantaged. Um, we are, our population, Hispanic population is pushing close to 80% now. Um, so we have a lot of, we have a lot of kids that need opportunities. And I feel as though in this environment, um, and I learned that I had to be embedded into the system in order to change the system. Um, so that was another driver of, you know, leaving Janelia is uh, I saw this disconnect with K-12. I saw this disconnect between, you know, how do we bridge the gap between K-12 and post-secondary? But when I tried to do it externally outside of the system, um, it was it was whole, it was really impossible because you could do a field trip experience or you could do a little taste here or there, but it wasn't until you're embedded into the system that you can really make a change. And um, so this program and um, this process of learning has really made major impact on the lives of kids. We had several kids that were a part of our brain tracing program and they got full rides to universities because they stood above their peers. They, they stood out amongst, you know, all the other people that were applying for these, you know, these grants and, uh, or these, uh, um, you know, opportunities for, uh, um, uh, for a full ride. And uh, that's, that, I mean, that's, that's the why, right? Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, really trying to make an impact. But then, you know, I think us as a society, I think we're really failing because we have all the tools to make the success uh, happen in, in that environment. Um, but people, somebody needs to put those pieces together and yeah. then create a model and then just, you know, duplicate it. So that's- And that's, it's not just the high school students that you just mentioned 
who were working on some of the projects that you were uh, that you were saying there but it is also you are also trying to inculcate this into the middle school and also in, into the primary school as well so give us a couple of examples where yeah. you can actually inspire younger kids i mean the stage where you can induce the most amount of plasticity in the brain uh, in kids how how are you how are you changing their view about making science accessible and simple and logical um well since we're talking about neuroscience or you brought up neuroscience I'll, I'll use that example but um i will you know before i give your answer you know there's you know the system really beats out uh, beats out curiosity so it takes a or basically pushes it off to the side and and that's you know we as a society we created a robotic system in education and we took away the discovery we took away the you know the the opportunity to just um try to figure things out even at a very young age and that and that just it sucks so so back to your question um, and i thought that was a problem only with the indian system of education jason but it looks like that's a, that is actually a universal problem now and i hear the same thing about about schools in in uk as well uh, so i think it looks like we're all kind of gone down that rabbit hole of of getting things into a tick box exercise during education and going from yeah. i wanted to learn this 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 during one school year and then moving on to the next one but yeah fascinating to hear go on yes yeah and and we should we should all learn from the fins you know i mean they just nailed education because they they designed it around discovery you know it's not about you know trying to you know teach the formula of pi it's it's about giving the a kid a ball and try to figure out what the diameter and circumference is right um so yeah so we uh um you're right i, I mean we're born naturally curious right we were born very curious very interested and um educate education is this really boxed system and it's um there's a lot of uh accountability and uh and i feel like it's more of it's an it's it's an adult behavior thing it's not a kid thing the kids process the same everywhere around the planet they all have the capacity to learn the same so um just being able to give them opportunities to be curious and dive in and and try to figure things out give them uh um yeah well i i guess i just said it just give them opportunities to be curious but back to your neuroscience question we 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 took a k12 approach to neuroscience um here in our district so we have um kindergarten through fifth grade students they you know one of our campuses they have a vivarium and they call it a vivarium um where they are raising cockroaches they are raising cockroaches for the anticipation of learning about um behavior uh we have teeks that that's our state standard so kids at very young ages have to learn about animal behavior so they can learn about behavior of animals they can uh do electrophysiology which we have fourth and fifth grade kids that do electrophysiology on cockroaches using backyard brains through a um a, a very dear friend and collaborator Greg Gage um so they're so they're able to do the you know work with the instrumentation they're able to look at take their ipad instead of uh using it for just testing i mean they were able to use it to look at spiking and 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 see when a neuron spikes and uh when they when they put probes into a cockroach leg 
Um, so the, you know, at el elementary level, they're learning the vocabulary, they're learning um, the, the, the scientific method, they're able to be around the environment. They walk into, we, we, we converted a portable um, and turned it into the vivarium. When they walk into the vivarium, they put on their lab coat, they feel like they're in a different place. Um, they, they have ownership in the learning process. Um, they're able to ask questions, and it's a matter of getting teachers to try to think about how do we pull these experiences and tie them into what they need to learn. So, you know, the, the mathematical equations or, or the, you know, scientific questions or how do we write about our experiences, so our ELAR piece of it. Um, so, so do they actually physically make the connections uh, because yes. uh, to, to measure, say, a new electrical activity? whatever it might be, be neural activity or, or other forms of, do they actually learn about how to make the connections, how to diagnose at their level, the, their school year level that they are in? Um, if something goes wrong or if there is a reading that's not coming, do you actually work with them to diagnose the problem? Is, is that the part of learning here? Yeah, and it, it is to an extent. I mean, you can... You can imagine it doesn't go down into like extreme levels of neuroscience, but mechanically, I mean, they're, uh, they can test the equipment. They can figure out, are we not getting a connection in the equipment itself? Or maybe, maybe when we put the, uh, the uh, electrode into the, um, a cockroach leg, maybe we didn't hit the neurons right. Or maybe the cockroach leg needs to warm up a little bit because we anesthetized it and they do the anesthetizing process. They do the surgery process. So they do all these protocols throughout this. So yes, they, they do go through the, um, the same aspect of uh, the research as a researcher would, but we try to keep it at a level that it, it, it stays, it's fun and it yeah. maintains the curiosity. Yeah. Um, and they, they have an opportunity if they want to take it to another level that they can, you know, they can, they can ask other questions. Well, maybe we need to go out and get a grasshopper and then, and then maybe we could put a grasshopper leg on this device and then maybe we can uh, compare that, the activity from the grasshopper to the, to, to the cockroach. I mean, that's science, right? I mean, it's about the unknown. They don't know what it is. Uh, they don't know what's going to happen and they're going to figure it out through an experiment. So yes, they do have that capability of doing things like that. Yes. So being a non-scientifically oriented person myself, I'm more geared towards arts and letters, humanities and history. How does this program then um, take care of those kids that are, that are not envisioning themselves on a STEM career path? How do you, how do you, emphasize the value of this curriculum for everybody, not just those with the natural scientific curiosities? Um, and that, that's, that's a great question. Um, so we had several different things that we have done. We, we've done this project, you know, it's called the Student Space Flights Experiments Program, where kids can come up with a scientific protocol to shoot uh, an experiment on International Space Station. So we've done that a couple years in a row and kids, um, our kids were selected two years in a row to shoot their experiment in space. But then there's also the arts side of it where they can create patches that also fly on the mission. So we had kids that were doing artistic pieces of, uh, of, of the science experiment uh, that went on the International Space Station. But, it, but at the same time, um, as we roll out these um, projects and courses, 
Um, if a kid is in a neuroscience course, they might be more interested in the science communication aspect of that. So how do we tie in um, those connections? How do we bring in those experts? Uh, just like I mentioned with, uh, with neuroscience, we have seven post-secondary campuses, but then we're also gonna bring in opportunities where students can contribute to the science communication of what they're doing. Um, and may, I'm hoping that's answering your question, but um, I envision like the future classroom uh, when you go into a science classroom that it has many different facets. If you wanna to go to a neuroscience class, you're gonna learn about um, computer science and programming, you're gonna learn about biology and you're gonna learn about physics and you're gonna learn about science communication. You'll have all these different things, but at the same time you're doing all hands-on inquiry-based learning um, throughout the whole course. And then you're tied to all these other universities. So, you know, a kid in, in, in West Texas, I mean, do, they, do you think that they would ever even think of working for DAX lab at the, you know, um, West Virginia University? You know, I mean, or working with, you know, Davi Bach at uh, University of Vermont. Um, they wouldn't even thought of those, those campuses or those schools. Well, what do those schools have to offer that might interest them? Um, so there's a lot of there's a real a lot of really interesting facets to the experience. It's not just doing the scientific thing. It's not just doing the the neuroscience component, but it's all those networks that you can build within that experience itself. And then that's how you sell it to a kid. You want to be a part of this class or this course because you're gonna to get to work with all these different universities. You're gonna to get to do all these really cool experiments and you're gonna to get to learn about all these different opportunities um, for your career path. Um, and who's to say that they don't end up skipping around to multiple universities that they were exposed to just because of that experience. Um, I think um, my, my biology and physics teachers, Mr. Fogwell and Mr. Sims are gonna just cringe if ever they hear me say that the most I ever learned about science was from Schoolhouse Rock. Um, it, it sounds like this program it, it's it's contagious almost. And and I'm you've just explained how you sell it to the kids. How I, I think I've got two questions here. One is how do you how do you get the teachers who like we've talked about in the past. They've gone to school their whole lives. They go to school to learn how to become a teacher, and then they turn around and go right back in the classroom without the practical experience. So how do you engage with them and encourage them to try something new like this program? And then um, after that, I want to get into the economics of it because that, you know, somebody's got to pay for this, and I, I think we've touched a little bit on it, but we'll let you start there. Sure. Um, so I believe in the system of feeding the lion. And what I mean by that is if I have a teacher that's out there, that's very, um, you know, has a lot of drive, a lot of curiosity, um, I'll approach that teacher and I'll say, what if you had an opportunity to do this? And this, this could benefit you because one, maybe there's some stipends attached. One, maybe I get to send you up to Ann Arbor, Michigan, and you can learn all of Greg Gage's, uh, um, you know, little neuro tricks with his backyard brains, or I could send you to Tulane Medical Campus and you can learn stem cell research, or I can send you to UNT and learn stem cell research. 
Um, so that builds that teacher's capacity and knowledge base. It also gives them that toolkit that I feel teachers need because um, if you are only known to the system, then how can you share to kids what's out there? Um, so if you're, if, if you, if you're a teacher and, and you might be awesome at teaching and there's tons of amazing teachers, but if you never stepped into a, um, you know, a, a paleo lab or you never stepped into, uh, you know, um, you know, a neuroscience lab, how can you share that? How, I mean, other than the book itself that you flip through and you see pictures of, I mean, how can you really explain it to a kid and get them excited? It's just like you said, Jojo. I mean, your, your science, your science um, um, class, uh, it, it wasn't engaging because you didn't have the buy-in. You didn't have the tangible experience with the ownership in your learning process. Um, I was very fortunate because I grew up very curious and I love science because I was just naturally curious. So science class was one of the few classes that I did enjoy um, because I was able to tinker around and play with things. So I, so I made it fun for me in those classes, whereas a lot of kids, they just, and until they're really exposed to it, until they have an opportunity to, to see what's out there, they have no idea. They don't know what they don't know. Um, so until you really share with them the possibilities, uh, they, they just won't be engaged. So with a teacher, you know, selling teachers, um, I, I like feeding the lion. When I find a teacher that's really interested, I will feed them as much as possible and, and, and get them excited. I have the, the gal that's teaching neuroscience. I mean, she, I sent her to Ann Arbor, Michigan. Um, I sent her to Ann Arbor. She learned, uh, she learned the methods there. I do plan to send her to other universities to work with neuroscientists. She's doing brain tracing with CatMate software. We're going to be doing uh, tracing and, neur and neural tissue with uh, virtual reality and uh, as a uh, as a pilot and we're the only district in the in the in the world that I know of that are going to take that's going to take it to this level and then the idea is to to learn um, how to uh, go into tissue volumes in virtual reality and do data analysis in high school and then give it away you know give away that that model and that you know that technique um, so when you find those ex those teachers that are really excited that's that's where you build the course. I mean, this, that, that neuroscience course didn't exist. I mean, it doesn't exist anywhere as a full-blown credited course, weighted course. Um, so kids get, you know, the, the, the uh, um, a weighted course uh, credits in high school, but then they also get all these experiences with all these universities. Imagine what their resume looks like. Look at the teacher's resume. The fact that a teacher can turn around and say, I taught a neuroscience course and I, and um, I was, a, um, in, you know, in collaboration or a partnership with seven universities. Yeah. Uh, so who's going to hire that teacher? Anyone. I mean, everybody's yeah. going to want to hire. So yeah. there, so there is buy-in there. Is it, I mean, can you do it with every teacher? No. I mean, you can't. I mean, it, not at this point that I, that I found. I mean, it's very intimidating. But I think it's the role of administration to make sure that you support it 100%. That means yeah. you don't throw it out there and you just walk away. You have to support it 100%. We do that. Um, yeah. We have an innovation department that does that. So that's that's fantastic. Um, I I just have one follow up to that. 
So this seems like it's actually ripe for, for trained scientists to actually come and do the wonders. Because if, if education is all about providing the vocabulary for kids to ultimately go and apply it in whatever language, I mean, it's about just learning the words. It's about learning the letters. And then you can, you can bring them up in various uh, kind of proportions and, and combinations and permutations to ultimately apply it in whatever way that, that a person sees it fit. So who do you think, I know you have very strong views about this, Jason. So who do you think you would like to see come into the area of education as teachers? <laughs> uh, um, so, you know, in my, my past, um, I, was, uh, I was, I worked with a lot of postdocs that were extremely frustrated. It goes back to, uh, what I mentioned earlier about, um, um, you know, you have a postdoc that is, you know, wants to go out for a, uh, you know, a, a position somewhere else, and they are focused in one tiny little specific area of science. Um, and there's only one job opening, and there's, you know, 10 postdocs going after the one, that same job. There's, there's nine people that are going to sit back and not have that opportunity. So I saw a lot of frustration in the, the postdoc world. I mean, imagine if we had a repository of postdocs just wanting to go into the education world. They have real world experience. They can continue with this model, like with PIC Education, they can continue to do research in that environment. They have their little labs because they have all these kids. And they're able to create this amazing opportunity for kids to contribute to real research. So, plus the postdoc will make a lot more. So I think that would be a really, uh, you know, an untapped um, resource where, um, you know, us as a nation and maybe as, you know, on a global scale is to create these pathways of what does it look like to go, you know, for a postdoc to go into that world. Because that's what we need more of. We need more of real world teachers, um, teachers that have been out there um, uh, that, that have uh, been a part of research. Um, we have very few. We have, I can think of one in our district right now that um, um, she was an MD down in South America and she had her own practice. Well, moving to our country, she can no longer use that practice. Well, that's a shame, you know, because you know, she has to go through all the training again, but that's the way the system is. But um, I took her to Ann Arbor, Michigan, and she was able to apply a neuroscience. So now she's a rock star um, in middle school doing neuroscience applications because that that is a tie to her world. And, you know, and she has a lot of uh, background in, you know, the medical and science fields. So now she can apply it to students. So that was, a, that was a huge asset for our district. So if you're, you're able to make it economically appealing for new and incoming teachers, or I don't want to say repurposed, that sounds uh, disrespectful. Um, what I also want to talk about is selling this program, because I think this program can be extended and applied far beyond your district, and we've talked about that. But I think part of that needs to be sold through the economic model. And you talked earlier about the increase in attendance during the, the PIC education programs that you've put on. And you've seen attendance gains of between 2 and 6%, I think is what you've previously said. 
that uh, what a lot of people don't understand is that attendance is directly tied to remuneration for the school districts. So what does that percentage increase mean for you economically? Um, if I, I'm going to do the math on the top of my head, so please bear with the numbers, but um, like a, I think for every half percent attendance gain as a district with 34,000 kids would equivalent to a million dollars. So that's a lot of dough. Um, Impressive. And, and uh, you but know, this is million dollars from the state, right, Jason? Yeah, so for, yeah, exactly. especially for the folks who are who are not U.S. Um, kind of citizens uh, who are listening to the podcast, I think this re relates to attendance is directly proportional to the amount of grant that they get from the state or the local body. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and that's right. And it's not that we're money driven. It's it's the more money you have, the more resources that you can put into your school system. You know, that's that's more money that you can build new, um, you know, uh, uh, new workspaces or, you know, create new programs or, you know, buy more gear for um, um, fine arts. Uh, so so, yes, I mean that the pay teachers, you know, um, so so, yeah, the, the funding is a huge piece of it. Um, so there's the funding side, the funding side of it, but then there's that, you know, it, the fact that we had two to 6% attendance gains really makes you scratch your head and saying, what the hell have we've been doing as a educational system? Because those kids should be, that attendance should be there all the time. It should always be high, you know, kids should always want to come to school and always want to participate. So um, I think that's, that's, that's an issue that, you know, not just in, in this state, I mean, it's our country, it's multiple countries, uh, getting kids interested in, in, in doing school. And, you know, as we think of the future, and that's what I have to look at a lot in my department is, you know, what is the future classroom look like, or what is the future position of our district, um, as in a digital world, the, the, the attention span that kids have nowadays, I mean, you got Snapchat, you got um, Instagram, and you got TikTok, and you got all these apps that are geared towards very limited attention spans. Um, so that's what you're up against. So giving a 50-minute lecture just doesn't cut it. You know, it's not going to cut it in the classroom. So you got to get kids physically involved in their learning process. Um, so I think we we share out a lot of that through what we've developed here in uh, in this pick education model is giving kids more time to to be curious, naturally curious, to be a part of something, to physically uh, you know manipulate something. You know what's you know with the COVID environment that that we're dealing with now, I think that's going to be a huge issue. Uh, you know that kids are chiming in just virtually all the time. Uh, but we're not, they're not getting the manipulatives because they're at home. Um, usually those things would be housed at the school. Um, so how do we get them a part of something? So we, um, I, I, I reached out to a, a friend at Stanford and um, he developed or co-developed something called Foldscope. And uh, so we're about ready to launch through um, all of our fifth grade students to start uh, every single fifth grade student will get a fold scope. 
Um, and uh, they will be able to tie that with all their um, cross-curricular. So we're working with all of our content people in curriculum. How does this tie to math? How does it tie to science? How do we write, read, and write about it in ELAR? Um, so now the kids will have this microscope. They can go out, they can discover, they can work with their parents. So we created this uh, web page on our PIC education site that's dedicated to that. So there's all these resources, there's blended learning models that you can tie with it. Um, there's lessons, uh, there's activities, videos. Um, so we pushed that out and we're just now getting ready to do the distribution to about 3000 students. Um, so, you know, that, that would be like a, a kickstart to maybe we do a K-12 fold scope initiative with Stanford. Um, so Stanford's really excited because I think this is the largest, uh, um, you know, district rollout of Foldscope um, so far. Uh, we we bought out all their inventory and had to make they had to get more made in in China to, to fulfill our rollout. But uh, but that's the things we got to look at is like how do we get these manipulatives and these things in the hands of kids um, and 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 get them excited about learning, you know, in a in a digital and a remote environment. Um, I, I want to, before I forget, I, I do want to tack on to something that Jojo had mentioned about, um, she mentioned about the uh, attendance gain and what, is, what does that mean for the district as far as funds, and that funds thing brought up uh, something I want to touch on, and that is every single one of our post-secondary partnerships, and I think our total partnerships for all of our initiatives right now is approaching about 30 um, it's close to 30 universities. Um, every single bit of that professional development for our teachers and every single piece of, that, of those collaborations cost us nothing, zero, zero dollars. The only dollars that, that were involved was the travel that it took if I had to send teachers to those places. And all that was supported by outside funding through grants. So it wasn't even taxpayer funding. So I think that's really fascinating and super important because the reason why that is, is because the, the design of the program is a win-win on both sides. It's a 50-50 split. What does a university get out of the partnership and what do we get out of the partnership? So if you're doing brain tracing and you're working with the DAX lab at West Virginia, well, maybe our kiddos can share um, um, data with them that can ultimately advance the research. Um, we're a part of a grant process that, that is, that is going to involve um, a curriculum on how to train people to work in their, um, <clears throat> in their uh, software solution for brain tracing. So we're a part of that process. So that's a win on that university side. It's a win on our side because our kids are working with real data. They're contributing to real science, and they get, you know, these pathways into uh, universities to ultimately take them to the next level in their life and as far as their career. You know, and, and our teachers are obviously getting the, the the exposure as well. So, so I wanted to make sure I hit on that because I think that's fascinating in itself. That there's all these resources out there, and no one's really bridging the gap. Um, so we're really making a fundamental um, uh, step in that in that process of what is that um, what does that bridging the gap look like? What does that model look like? How does it 
post-secondary talk to K-12 and vice versa. Um, so there's really no systematic thing put in place. So that's, that's something that we're really trying to fix. And then hopefully just give it away, that model, that process. What does that look like? And then, you know, hopefully more, more folks, uh, if they listen to this, maybe they want to partner with us. Maybe they have cancer research that they want to share. Maybe they have, maybe they're doing, uh, you know, some type of project offshore and they're doing some kind of fish count or looking at how much, uh, you know, microplastics are in the ocean. There's a lot of research around that. So um, there's tons of things out there. There's tons of questions yet to be answered. So why aren't those questions a part of our educational process? You know, if it's already there, already exists, why is that not in the learning process? And that just baffles me, you know, and it goes back to my early childhood. I feel like when I graduated high school, I felt like I was robbed of an education because it wasn't until I left high school that I realized all these things existed. So I think about the kids that are in isolation in isolated areas where we're at, um, they don't know what they don't know. So why, you know, why not give them the opportunities and why not put that in their hands? So ultimately we can, you know, create those pathways and, and move society forward. So Jason, I think another, um, another program that we had touched on briefly was how one of your programs is actually going out to a, a population in even greater need. And that's some of our special needs kids. Will you tell us about what you're doing there? Yeah, we, um, you know, through this whole pick education model where we bring the real world in, in the hands of, of children um, through the scientific discovery and, and give them opportunities of, of uh, using tech of tomorrow um, in, in the classroom. We, we wanted to create opportunities for our students with special needs. And um, this is in an amazing collaboration with a local university. It's the University of, of Texas Permian Basin. And uh, working with some of their um, um, professors in uh, bringing opportunities for students with autism would be one population where, uh, you know, students with autism, I, I feel like they have um, a power in many cases, which I, I wish I had, you know, the way they process information. So why not harness that? Um, why not give them the opportunity to, um, to share that skill level and give them the tools to do it with? So, just like we mentioned in, um, you know, in our conversation about, like, say, the neuroscience class, and you have kids that are um, working with softwares, um, imagine if we had um, students with autism in a virtual reality environment, and they're in, immersed into this um, 3D volume of cell tissue, and they're able to drive, like in a gaming experience, drive into neural networks and trace neurons and tag neurons and share their data back with, um, with universities. So that's just now starting to take off where we're, we're looking at what does that look like with a, we're working with a software company called SciGlass. And, um, and it's a relatively small company at the point or right now, but uh, they were, they were able to take all these um, image files like CT scans or MRIs or, or uh, you know, confocal images or EM images, 
put them into the 3D environment, which our kids love to be in anyhow. They love the gaming aspect of it. And then you can dive into the data. Um, we have a relationship with, uh, you know, Tulane Medical Campus and now uh, UNT, where a researcher was interested in stem cell research. And one of the things that our students were doing is they were using ImageJ to do image analysis and volumetrics in ImageJ, which is open source from uh, NIH. Um, but they become bored really quick because it's in 2D. But once they see that data in 3D, they get really excited. So it's been proven too with students with autism um, that in a virtual reality environment, it enhances their learning experience. So we wanna build a, um, a little autism center here in our district um, and then come up with different methods to serve that population and then share that out. But we're also uh, with the same university, we're looking at students with special needs and say if they have limitations and mobility, and um, imagine if a, if a student that um, the only mobility they had is their eyes or their mouth, but we were able to equip them with a puff machine or something to track their eyes and they can replicate um, or not replicate, they can design something with a software and 3D print out their design or their invention. And uh, imagine what the parents would feel like if they were able to get something physical from their child that they never thought would have the capability of doing. Uh, we have a special uh, you know, needs situation where the kid just, all they wanna do is auto mechanics, they love cars. So we're looking at virtual reality solutions where they can go into mechanics and they can learn through career and technical education platforms how to tear apart engines and car and uh, car parts. So there's these, you know, these different things like I said, the, you know, earlier, the tools are there. It's a matter of bringing the tools into that population and making it um, approachable and uh, interesting for kids to learn. So I'm pretty proud of the, the fact that we, we, do, um, we do get support and we, do, uh, uh, we have the interest in our district to, to serve that population. But once you share that out, the, the amount of... Uh, interest from our community, from, from universities, everybody wants to have a hand in that. So again, it's like, it, it doesn't really become a funding drag. It just, it just embeds more community because they know that population needs served. It blows my mind. The, the, the programs that you've put together and, and the adoption and, and the, the vision that you have is, is pretty amazing. Um, but, and I think it, if there was, um, one bit of advice that you would want to convey to some of these kids who see themselves as generalists, or even if they, they want to be um, highly specified in their training, what might that be? I mean, I never, I mean, never lose focus, never give up on what your drive is and never, um, I would say just, and I, and I feel like this is like one of those quotes or whatever, but it's, it's not, it really truly is, is, you know, I've always followed what I believed in for me. Um, I, I, I always followed the things that, that interest me, the things that I can make an impact on. Um, and I, I never lost focus of that. And, um, and I think that's incredibly valuable. And, uh, and I think that, 
you know, um, just, just, um, you know, just never lose focus on, on, on who you are. Um, never lose focus on, you know, your dreams or your passions. I mean, everybody says that, right? Don't lose focus of that. But it, but, you know, in, in too many cases, it's just, it's so liquefied by what you have to do. Um, it just washes out, like, because you have to be focused on something, you know, um, I guess this kind of diverted into something else. And, and that is, you know, in the education system, um, and you're in high school, uh, well, pick a career that you want to do. Well, I didn't have that. I didn't want one career. I didn't even know what I wanted. And we have kids that are in that same position now. They don't know what they want. Um, and they shouldn't know what they want. They, don't, they shouldn't know what they want until they experience what's out there. Um, so, uh, so, I mean, for me, I did, you know, sharing out, it's just, just never be consumed by um, what you feel like you have to do or focus on one particular thing. It's, it's what are the possibilities and how many things can I be a part of? I think that should be the thing. That should be the answer to life. And that should be the pathway to life is like, how many things can I be a part of? Um, and, uh, and, and create, you know, um, I don't know your, your whole self. I don't know. I did. I'm trying to think of the right words, but, uh, I can't think of the right words other than, you know, do what you want to do. <laughs> That's awesome. Thanks. I, th I think your, your passion and your innovation behind pick education is, is truly infectious. And that's a, that's a huge part of why we wanted to have you on the show. Um, and I think that we're definitely going to include some of the resources and contact information in the show notes so that hopefully, you know, other, other districts that want to emulate and, and put your program into their districts can reach out to you. And also so that, you know, any of our university friends listening, if they want to, help you grow that network of 30 universities um, and, and exponentially, you know, that they can take that upon themselves to be in touch. Um, but I, I also wanted to have a fangirl kind of issue here with something else that you've done and repeatedly, which as far as I know, you're the only repeater, um, which is Saifu. So you're now our second consecutive guest who's been to Saifu and um, it's, like I said, it's a fangirl moment. It's it's the speakeasy of of science and innovation, and I want to hear more about it. Yeah, um, you know, I remember when I got the email. Uh, was that Janelia? It was in 2012, and uh, I got an email from Tim O'Reilly of O'Reilly Media. Uh, I'm trying to think uh, who it was with Nature. Um, Anyhow, it was, it was a group of folks that sent this email out and said that um, we would love for you to participate in um, science food camp. And it kind of goes through the description. And, and I started reading this thing. and I was like, well, this is a joke. This is spam. There's no way. What the heck is this about? And so I Googled, um, I, I Googled Google science, Saifu camp of all things, but I Googled it and, uh, Jonathan Eisen out at UC, uh, UC Davis, but um, Jonathan Eisen had this blog post and he did the same thing. He got this email and he thought it was a joke and uh, he found out that it wasn't a joke. So I reached out to him and I said, hey, what do you think about the Cypher thing? I got this email and I'm very intrigued and I'm kind of humbled that I would get such an email. 
And he said, by all means, go. And that's all we said. So, so I went in 2012 and, um, and uh, I think it, you know, it was a pivotal point in my life, <clears throat> in my direction of my thinking, because what they do is at Saifu is they put all these people together that have all these ideas and, um, you know, uh, some major movers and shakers to people that just have a really interesting idea that possibly could, you know, go to new levels. Um, and, and you have Nobel laureates and you have, uh, you know, I mean, Larry Page and all these guys are there and, um, and, you, and they put you in an environment um, where you basically, um, you design the, the conference on the fly. Um, um, <clears throat> and what I mean by that is you, uh, once you get out to Google, um, you get off the bus, they badge you in and uh, um, then there's a social hour or two. And then you sit in a room afterwards of 200 of 200 or so of your quote unquote peers, which I still can't believe I'm in a peer group like that, but um, in your peers. And then uh, they have you stand up and in five words or less, describe yourself in a mic and then pass the mic around to every person and you do it within 15 or 20 minutes. And it was just mind blowing. I mean, the people that stood up and said who they were and, you know, you know George Church and some of these guys um, that you read about and you read about their science and then you're sitting next to them and you're all in the same level. You're all in the same playing field, but you, have all, you all have the same thing in common. That is you have ultimately an interest to change the world. And, um, but you, you might be from the arts or you might be from the sciences or film or, or, um, you know, engineering or astrophysicist, you know, and, and they, and they put all these people together that they wouldn't commonly work together into this environment. And then what comes out of it is just mind blowing. Um, what I, what I talked about and what I discussed at SAIFU, you would read about in nature and you would read about in the news, um, six months or half a year later and they're groundbreaking things. And it, it was just absolutely fascinating. My first session, um, and the way they do sessions, you know, after you do your introduction, they bring out these big blank boards and then you just write session, uh, suggestions ideas in these blocks and then people can decide to co-session with you or join your session and you have no idea who's going to show up but my first session was with sir harry croto of the nobel laureate in chemistry along with peter norvig which was uh, director of technology at google and and the then, guy who discovered buckminster fullerene yeah and then and then there's this kid from pennsylvania that cracked rocks open you know and, uh, and, you know, and I'm, I'm sitting there and I'm, I'm having a co-session with them, you know, and Tim O'Reilly walks in and, they, you know, you've you got these billionaires walking in your session. It's just mind-blowing, but it was so comforting at the same time because everybody cared about what everybody had to say. Um, and that changed the way I view things because now – I realize that the work that I do is really important to other people and it can make an impact on them as well. So it's that it goes back to that network that we were talking about earlier and creating those networks 
and how we could benefit from each other. And Saifu is just that. It is like a mecca of minds. And uh, I've seen things that just blew my mind there. And uh, um, I was very fortunate to go to Saifu three times. Um, most times, uh, from what I was told, you get invited once and the idea is to get turnover. But um, because of this generalist approach, I'm constantly doing and digging into different things that then ultimately interest them. And I talk about those different things. So you can see in the three different Saifu experiences, I'm talking about different things while I'm there. Um, and, uh, and so that, that's kind of fascinating as well. And I, I got, I made some incredible friends. I'm, I mean, unfortunately we lost uh, Harry Croto and I think in 2016, but he became a friend um, and to have a Nobel laureate as a friend and just write down a, a, a Florida state at the time and, and just asking random questions and get our immediate response is just awesome. I think some of the topics that you actually sent uh, me and Jojo was, was wonderful. I'm just going to read it out just so that people can actually appreciate uh, the broadness of, of what is being discussed. I think, let me just do the, do the honor here, Jason. Um, first one is internet education for teachers in 2012. Um, and then there was a lightning talk that you gave at, on classroom sourcing science and science sourcing education. Um, that was in 2012. In 2014, there was another topic, which I think I just love the title. Science isn't scary. How can we, how can we be better at explaining that to the public? Um, and then more recently in 2019, uh, it was about swamp whales and paleo tales. But my absolute favorite among everything in the list is big data, little scientists. I think that, that just encompasses about all the energy and, and the inspiration that you bring in terms of your journey from, from being a kid who was interested in paleontology through to your current role as a, as a, as a chief innovation officer in the, in the West, West Texas school, school district. Um, it is truly an honor, a privilege, and an inspiration to actually have you on the show. And th thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us, Jason. Uh, I'm sure there'll be a lot more people who will want to know more. We are going to include a lot of resources on, on, on our website, on the blog uh, for this uh, episode. And we will also ensure that we do our bit to publicize this, Jason, and, and get more people to follow suit because what you're doing is truly transformational and you're trying to challenge the system. So we will definitely do our bit. Well, I, I had a blast. And, I, I appreciate you fleshing that out um, through these discussions because, you know, sometimes you get so caught up into what you're doing that um, I think there's a level of reflection that, that has to take place every once in a while. So I appreciate that. And um, yeah, and I, I, I appreciate the, what you guys are doing as well. And um, you know, nobody, a lot of times people really don't know what's happening out there unless people are pushing out that information and sharing it. So I think what you're doing is really awesome. And I look forward to, to hearing what other, people's ha other people have to say about their, um, their neck of the world. Thanks so much, Jason. Our sound editor is Sayantan Chandran. The soundtrack was Digger by Acid Dad. 
You can find their collections on Apple iTunes Store, Google Play Store, Spotify, and many other platforms. Our main sponsor is Cortec. You can find their information at cortec-neuro.com. This is Arun and Jojo signing off. Okay.